This is David Poland, and this is the audio podcast version of DP30. Today, Rebecca Hall, writer director of Passing. How are you? I am. I am good, thank you. How are you? Is that I'm okay? Is that your professional corner? Have you figured out that's the space to do Zoom interviews in? If I'm being completely honest, it is not my ideal spot. No. <laughs> it's, I, set it's up a, I set up a very good spot in my office, and then. It, it was it's been undergoing a renovation ah. so I've now I'm in this weird corner which is fine it's bland apart from this yes what was that I don't know I just I, I've only noticed it since doing zoom huh some sort of some sort of nick in the thing that needs repainting is the door to your I left to frame it out the and wall? then it's I yeah I, I'm stuck in this corner so I can't <laughs> I can't really frame it out because this is a very uncomfortable and then I'm sort of trapped and I don't know. This is this is not preferable, I don't think. Yeah, I've got a camera on a boom now to Yours try to make it more good. equitable so I can move it in whatever direction I want to move it in, which I started doing for TV spots because I could shoot from this. I like had to pick a side and it's been, it, it, I guess we're over that part of COVID now where we're all trying to figure out our Zoom angles. Yeah, I think I've ceased to care. Yes. <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's how I'm over it. <laughs> that's it. Just get over it. Get on with it, for God's sakes. <sighs> so, Passing Lives. It is a constant conversation. People love the movie. People are still talking about the performances. People are still talking about your work. Uh, does it feel like it's been a long journey since you actually made the movie? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. It depends how you define where the journey starts. I mean, you, you're saying from the shooting. Well, it started in your childhood, didn't it? Pretty much. It's yeah. been a long time. <laughs> I'd say. I mean, I read the book when I was 23 or four or something like that. Five, maybe. Um, yeah, probably 25. Let me see. Yes. Um, so... And that was the first draft of the script I wrote in 10 days directly after reading the book. And how close was that script to what you ended up making? I mean, near and far, you know, I think, I, I, I think that it's closer than I could possibly have anticipated. <laughs> um, but of course it's far away too, because things change and evolve. And, but I, I think the essence of it is sort of the same. I think the, the, the sort of, the broad strokes world and idea of how to represent it visually in the sort of visual language, well, those were all ideas that I had then. Mm. Um, and perversely, they were also the ideas that, that stopped me getting on and making it immediately. <laughs> so you were ready to make it from the beginning? No, no. Ah. But I just mean that I, I had, most of the ideas were there, the, even if they were kernels. Right what they would become they were they were the ideas and um I, I suppose what I'm trying to say in a kind of roundabout way is that the scope and the ambition of it, of it including its sort of the film's own passing the film's own performance of being a movie black and white and a sort of formality to it and a kind of rigidity to it that can highlight all of the the themes um those were ideas that I had then and scared me because they felt too ambitious uh, for mm. a first time filmmaker. And I remember thinking, there's something to this and I have to make it, but it'll probably be my fourth or fifth film. Did you have three or four films in mind when you were thinking that or you just no. felt like you were overreaching to start off with? No, I just felt like I was overreaching a bit. But also I didn't really feel that. I mean, I, I, it's like the, I've lived alongside this project for the better part of my adult life. So I've matured and shifted with it. And yes, the ideas change, but I think more than that, I, I, my relationship to the ideas changed. I realized that they were good ideas and I had every right to make it and do it. <laughs> and... And the only thing that was really holding me back was myself. And that's why I got it out of a drawer. 
Mm. And then other factors held me back because it was it sat for six or seven years in a drawer. And then it was six or seven years actively out of a drawer, me being like, I'm ready to make this film and nobody, nobody letting me do it. Um, so is there a key? Is there a moment where you were you? Was there something that changed the idea that somebody would make this in black and white the way you wanted to make it? All the all the constrictors that you had put on it that you thought were holding you back. Was there, what opened that door to finally somebody saying, here's some money, go do it? Timing, I think. I mean, it, it had, in the sort of five year run up to it actually being shot, there were a lot of false starts. There were lots of moments where, um, you know, I, I got Tessa and Ruth. Mm -hmm. Ruth actually was, attached to it for close to four years, three, four years, something like that. And Tessa turned down work, actively quit something in order to do it. And then it fell apart. Um, and there was a real, it was a very scary moment because it fell apart for sort of kind of random financing reasons. But essentially when I tried to reassemble it, everybody said to me, we'll give you the money right now if you make it in color. <laughs> and I had to have a very scary conversation with Ruth and Tessa, knowing how much they had already sacrificed in order to do this, where I said to them, I, I have to believe that there's another path to getting this made. We might have to make it for considerably less money. We might have to make it with more restrictions than we want, but I can't make it in color. Um, if you think I'm wrong, tell me now. <laughs> I can't even imagine it in color. I mean, it seems so inherent to the material that it's hard to imagine it being done in a different way. No, I, I, I mean, obviously I completely agree with you, but there were plenty of financiers who, who didn't see it that way. And yeah. I kept saying to them, but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doing this because I, you know, I like, it's stylish. Yes, it is stylish. That is part of it. But it's also, this is also something much more integral to the themes of the story. And it highlights, it illustrates, it's so poetic. You know, it's like, this is, this is a story about the, the limits of categories and the rigidity and the horror of how busy we all are trying to categorize ourselves and put us into neat containers. And we, we, you know, we, we parcel out the world into all of these categories, black, white, and similarly, nothing is those categories. Everything right. spills out the sides, including black and white film, which isn't black and white, it's a thousand shades of gray. Um, it just felt so completely perfect, both on a metaphorical level, also on a practical level. It felt like the only way to tell the story and get to cast black actors who can't necessarily pass in a conventional sense if you create a different world that looks of itself then you create the rules for that world mm -hmm. and you get to see how all of these things how our eye how our eye perceives and how we categorize is based on context you know, you take it out of that context. You know, I love that people watch the movie and they're like, well, but I absolutely see this. And then someone else is like, but I absolutely see mm -hmm. this. And I'm kind of thinking, well, you're not seeing anything as it looks in the real world. So, you know, what you think you're seeing is, it's constantly calling that into question. Yeah. Um, well, it's a Rorschach test for us too, because all the shades of, of, of not white <laughs> exactly. are, you know, they change. And I, when I talked to Ruth, I, we, I actually said, asked her whether she had ever, passed or felt like she had passed and she said no not really there was never you know it was yeah. it, that was she never lived in that context even though she's lighter I think by a slight shade than and Tessa um and she's well, more I mean, all of it, instead of everyone sees things very differently yeah. and I think we will slightly like we all slightly see what what we know and what we see of ourselves I think there's a certain amount of projecting you know things that we're familiar with onto other people. So I think so much of how we perceive people is, is a sliding scale of many different factors, you know. So how much does your racial mix have to do, do you think, with a connection to this material? A huge amount, um, a huge amount. It's been incredibly 
it's been a very potent force in my life, this book. If it wasn't for this book, I wouldn't have any understanding of or context for my own family history. I mean, I I am the legacy of passing. I am the end result. It's not, and as complicated as that is, you know, I'm. it's no small irony. It's not lost on me that the structures of white supremacy and racism and all the rest of it that forced my grandfather to cut himself off from his family, deny his family, assume a white identity, those structures are also things that I benefit from as a white presenting person because he made that choice. Mm. And, but I also understand the toll of it, which is the more complicated thing because, you know, it's, it's difficult to kind of articulate. I think the film probably articulates it better than anything else, but race is a social construct. It's a very potent one, but it is a social construct. And I think in a way, passing almost highlights that because it shows the performance, it, like the slipperiness of all of these categories again. But also there is a powerful, powerful toll, that can't, psychological toll that comes from living in hiding. Mm. And my mother and her sisters grew up in a house where when they were children, where they were forging their identity, when they were trying to work out who they were, they were brought up in an atmosphere of secrecy and evasion and fear. Of course that results in fear. Like if you're constantly, you know, we don't talk about this, we don't know mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. this, person, this family member might come around to visit, but we've got to shut all the curtains and sneak them around the back, mm -hmm. you know? And, and when you're working out who you're gonna be, be this kind of person, make sure you're this kind of person, don't be this kind of person. Like there's no, there's no freedom to work out what you want to be because that you're, you're working it out in relation to fear, to a kind of oppression. And that's true of race in the largest scale. Like it's really difficult to work out, to find, find your identity within those structures of oppression. And that's true of people of sexual identity, that's true of gender identity, that's true of so many different kinds. And that's ultimately what it's about. Like how much freedom do any of us have to be you, who we are? Were you conscious of this as a child? As a, you know, preteen? Yeah. Because it was, I mean, I don't, it, you said about sneaking somebody around or things like that. Was that part of your life as a growing up or? No, it, it, was part, it was part of my mother's life. It was part of my right. mother's life. But my mother was, but my mother was born in Detroit and, you know, she was a very successful opera singer, which is kind of incredibly unlikely given where she came from and how she sort of subsumed herself into this very elitist sort of high art world, um, which is not at all where she came from. Mm -hmm. And she was, you know, I, she raised me in the, in the countryside in England in a sort of chintzy Laura Ashley perfect, kind of, you know, like very English sort of way. And she was, she was a diva, you know, mm -hmm. she really was a diva. And there was a kind of, it was kind of a role, you know, and I was very, I, I, there was always a sort of like, I was fascinated by how that, it was her completely, but it was also something that came mm. from something else that I had no understanding of. And then sometimes I'd, you know, she'd be, sometimes she'd be incredibly open and outspoken about it and say sort of, you know, I, I, someone called my father a terrible racial slur when I was 16 in front of me. Mm. And I'd be like, but then they were saying that to you too. What does that, what does that mean? And how do you see yourself? Oh, I don't know, I don't know. And then other times she'd be like, oh, I think we're black, but I don't know, I'm not sure. He never really said, it was not something that we can talk about. Huh. And for me, I would look at her and she did not look like everyone in the posh English boarding school that I was going to, you know, it was all very white, very, you know, Range Rovers and, um, <laughs> you know. And then there was my mother who to me always looked like she was African-American. Right. And I found it fascinating. 
and totally perplexing and also somehow very moving because there was wrapped up in it some sort of secret that was difficult to identify that didn't feel like it needed to be a secret you know and she didn't either that's the funny thing about all of this you know she didn't either but she didn't have the understanding or the knowledge at her disposal to make it not a secret all she had was the inheritance of a secret Mm. and that and when I read the book it was like the sort of piece that I never understood because there were so many things that I recognized about my mother in both of the women and also the circumstance and the feeling and what it was saying about this atmosphere of nebulous unidentifiable fear like you might do the wrong thing like you might be the wrong kind of person and I it felt so real to me both as it pertains to race specifically but also emotionally what the book is actually saying because you know the real the really astonishing thing about the book and the reason why I felt it absolutely had to be a film is that yes it's period yes it's it's a story about the emotional lives of two women of color but it asks a question to everybody whoever you are what are you hiding about yourself and it is not some sort of historical piece you're not looking at it and going oh what terrible things happened to what people of color in the 1920s you're actually being forced to reckon with what it means to you personally whether you're white black gay straight man woman whatever you are and that felt so radical to me well they don't have the signatures of oppression they are doing relatively well in the world in spite yes. of all of this in spite of no. the abusive moments no, they have, they have, you know, they, they're, they're educated, they're sophisticated, they're worldly, they're all these things. They yeah. have, they live in nice houses, they have money-ish, you know. It, yet, of course, that's kind of a, an illusion because in the grandest scale, living within a racist society, race overrides all of those things and becomes the one defining characteristic at yeah. a certain point. Well, secrets do also. I mean, yeah. I think one of the things, there's universality in the, in the piece for me, because I grew up within a family of secrets and particularly my mother holding her secrets most closely to her, um, though they, I mean, they're shocking, but they're not, they're, they didn't have to be secrets. She would probably be happier. Everybody else would probably be happier had they not been secrets. So it's always, you know, the thing of the unknowability of your parents and of, of other people. And even in the piece, the two women you know, one has one has more secrets and one has more discomfort trying to explore what she really feels about herself. Well, no, I mean, this is this is the sort of, you know, this is the red herring of it all is that, you know, it's there's the there's the woman who is ostensibly living her life with this huge secret that contains this constant potential danger all the time. And yet on some level, she is the most free and willing to be herself than any other character in the story it's like the mask gives her this freedom to be like well I'm you know I I will do whatever I have to do to get what I want and everything else is irrelevant to me like I, I will be who I have to be I will assume whatever identity because that's me which is a kind of like a weird irony. And the one who is saying, I'm absolutely doing the right thing, Irene, and I, I am being a good member of the black community and I'm, I'm taking all the boxes and I'm being a good mother and a good wife and all the rest of it is falling apart because she actually is, has no sense of who she is or what she wants or how to be. Well, there's also the sense that the racist husband is drawn to the forbidden fruit, even though he Absolutely. doesn't realize, or maybe he does from the beginning. Well, and that's, the violence that's perhaps like, is his yeah. cover, you know? No, that's very, that's very true. I mean, that was something that, it was a conversation that I had with everybody, actors and also heads of department. There was this sort of the MO of the, of the production on many levels was to, was that everything had to pass. I don't mean everything had to pass, like everything had to be passing on some level. Mm-hmm. 
like the costumes had to pass for 1920s, but they didn't actually have to be the 1920s. You know, everything had to be, everything had to first and foremost have this, you know, tell an emotional story before it told uh, historical accuracy or period detail or whatever it was. And everything, all the actors had to be passing in some way. So, you know, you've got Bill Camp's character who's obviously a closeted homosexual and, you know, he's, he goes up there and it's kind of there's this sort of unspoken power dynamic between him and Irene that's sort of based on the fact that she knows that about him maybe um you've got Claire who's obviously passing but one of the you know I had a we, I, I remember having a couple of conversations with um Andre and Alex who were both probably the hardest ones because we were like so how are you passing what's your story how are you passing and Alex and I came down on this idea of, you know, you know, you're on some level, you're passing for a racist because you're actually in love with one of because he really loves her. He really does love her. Um, and I think and that's actually the kind of root of it. Yeah. It's not, it's it's a there's a passion there that's, I mean, absolutely. Because she is so vibrant, she is so alive, yeah. and he's so not. In certain ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The first time I spoke to you was in, uh, I think, 2008 for Vicky Christina. And I, it was clear then that you were going to be a director. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think we may have actually talked about it towards the end of the conversation where, you know, because you, your, your mind and how you were seeing things was, it was clearly heading in that direction. And it took you a while. What, was this the thing you had to do? Ultim even though you thought, this is arrogant for me to want to do as my first thing. Was it inevitably the thing that you had to do in order to become inevitably. a director? Inevitably. I've, I've written other screenplays. I have sort of moseyed down the road of trying to do other things, but nothing, nothing got me in the way that this did. And nothing, nothing, I didn't have the same sort of clarity of vision about other things. I could have made them, but it sort of, it ended up feeling like a little bit of a kind of, you know, like I was sort of going through some steps in order to make passing rather than mm -hmm. <laughs> just make passing and then work out what you're going to make after that. But passing is the thing you want to make, so make it. So um, are you going to be able to make movies that are not as much a part of you? I, I think that's a sort of, I know what you're saying, but I don't entirely think that I do anything that isn't a part of me. I know that this is very a part of me, but right. all of the things I'm attracted to, all of the things I want to live in, I'm attracted to them for a reason. Right. I don't always know why yeah. at the time, but you know, there's, there's something that is about me that is drawing me to those things. So yeah, I, I don't think I've ever been able to do things that I don't, I do things that are fun and silly because I love being a storyteller, but that's also part of me, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that not everything has to be sort of, you know, incredibly heavy, but. Right. It's, but it's challenging. I mean, I talked to Tim Roth about his new movie recently and we were talking about Warzone which is one of my favorite movies from 99 already. It's incredible. I know. And he's never made another movie. He's never made another movie. I know. I, I worked with him recently and I, I quizzed him about it also. So, yeah. yeah. And it's a brilliant piece of directing. I mean, it's a, and, and brilliant. you know, non-actors and everything and Tilda's performance while pregnant. And I mean, yeah, it's a stunning piece. And yet, and he's not really like, oh, it took it out of me or anything. He has no real excuse. He just, hasn't really found the thing. Oh yeah, maybe I'll do so. Maybe I'll do it again soon. <laughs> like how long are you going to wait, Tim? It's been 20 years. <laughs> I know. I, I, no, I don't, I don't think that that's going to be my path. I, I, I suspect that I, I mean, I've already written stuff since passing. I've already, it's all I think about. I've never felt more um, at capacity than mm. when I was directing. And I don't want to lose that feeling. I mean, it just it just holds together so many of the things that I love to do. I mean, I've always sort of struggled with defining myself as an actor on some level. Like I, I paint, I write, 
I play music. These are things I'm just, um, I have to be creating something. Otherwise I don't really feel like I'm me, but I would never consider myself professionally and a painter or a musician or necessarily even a writer, but filmmaking holds all those things. And it just feels like what I'm meant to be doing. Like I've always written and it's always been a means to an end to making movies. I just didn't really understand that until now. So how do you feel as an actor now? I feel that it's sort of the same thing. I don't, I, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to describe this, but I'll never, I mean, I'll never give up acting. I love acting, but I think I'm definitely developing a slightly troubling, um, almost like junky relationship to acting like the the roles have to be bigger and more challenging and the mountains have to be larger and otherwise I'm not going to be satisfied and you I think have become an expert in playing against giant characters yeah I know and I think it's probably a really dangerous path to go down um because at a certain point it's just impossible it can't <laughs> but um but I do think that acting is you know I approach it like I approach directing on some level you know, I, I think of acting as you know, you're taking a character, you have the material, you've got the story, and it's your job to credibly deliver an emotional journey of a character from A to Z. And if you can't find the path, then you change the writing, but only if you can't find the path after a lot of investigation. <laughs> and for me, directing, you're just taking the whole thing from A to Z. And you have a lot more tools. You don't just have your right. body and your voice. You've got, you've got production design. You've got these, you've got incredibly talented people. You've got actors, you've got story, you've got music, sound, rhythm, all of the things, visual language that sort of excite me that I don't really get to play with when I'm an actor, but the, the process sort of feels the same. Um, so I don't, I don't think I'll give it up, but I'm, I'm definitely a, I'm definitely a filmmaker now. It's just was, it was something like Lay the Favorite a transitional event for you? Because it seems like that was the moment of Hollywoodification of you as an actor. Really? Well, you were playing the bimbo, this very, very smart bimbo, but you were, you know, playing the 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 girl on some level. And it seemed like the most the, the least you of you. <laughs> It, it was. It absolutely was. And that's why I wanted to do it. I think it it felt to me like Judy Holiday and Born Yesterday. And I just thought it was so funny. And I was like, I'd love to be able to pull this off. Like this would just be. And I I know that there's a side of me that is that <laughs> that's a little bit silly like that and playful and comedic. And I'd I'd love to do more things like that, but you know, I've nobody really asks me to. But <laughs> So I enjoyed Lady you... Favorite. I never thought of it like that. I really went after that one. Nobody wanted me to do that. I chased it. Well, it was so not what we expected from you. No, you know? but I like doing that. I'm just, I can't, I can't. I, I love doing things that people don't expect of me. So what do you take from the act when, when, you, when you've done, as you've done the acting, even though now you're doing all of these other things, hmm. what do you take away from it? Is it the, is it what you do on the set during that thing? Is it, is it the prepare, preparation for things and finding those characters and building them? Is there, is it work <laughs> at times? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it really is work. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's nice. I mean, I absolutely love to take the jobs that are from time to time that are not the mountains that are like, right. <laughs> it's gonna be fun and, you know, pay my bills. But, <laughs> but I, it can't always be the other thing. And I take as much joy from those as I do the mountain climbing. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be tough. The acting thing is going to be, I, I'm, I'm curious as to, as to the things that, the thing is, I, I do think that I love directing more than I've ever loved anything. And I've, I feel more myself as a director than anything else. But it really does take it out of you. Yep. You know, and and I don't think I could do it lightly um, in the way that sometimes I can take an acting job in a, in a light way. And that, I think that'll probably dictate a lot of the choices. So is your your relationship with the two actresses seems to be longstanding and intense. 
And they're both intense actors. They're both very, you know, passionate. Um, I think we ended up talking more about, I talked more about politics than we did about the movie in some ways. Because <laughs> sure. that was where the, yeah. you know, it's where the conversation goes with Ruth most of the time. Um, is that something that is, do you think part of your directorial signature? Is that part of something you expect that will be part of what you want your set to be like and your experience to be like with your actors going forward? Well, I'm not quite sure that I understand what you mean, like a level of intensity. A level of intimacy, I think. Um, yes, I don't think it's possible to, for, I think that, it has to be that way because there has to be a level of intimacy because you're all in it together. You know, I don't know whoever said that famous thing about it's, maybe it's not famous. Maybe someone just said it to me. I've got no idea, but there's a good quote about, you know, it's just as hard to make a bad film as it is to make a good one. It's hard. It's really hard. And we're all in this and we're all vulnerable together and no one's more vulnerable than the actors. And it's the director's job to, hold that vulnerability and protect it and trust them and make them trust you. And you can't get that trust without intimacy, without that. Mm. And I, I firmly believe in, I mean, I pretty much treated actors as I would like to have been treated as an actor. And part of that is a kind of honesty about what's going on. Um, And also being prepared to like be vulnerable when you need to be as a director. I think the best directors are capable of saying, I don't know. Mm. So as you went into this, as you started, as you finally started shooting after seven years, mm. were you ever unsure once you started or did you have it so deeply in your head that you were going yeah, I mean, forward? I mean, I, I, I'm very grateful for, um, what a long acting career has taught me. And one of the things that I do think that I've carried with me from, from that is that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fastidious preparer as an actor. And of course I turned out to be a fastidious preparer as a director, like I storyboarded everything. Mm. I, you know, <laughs> I, I loved that process. And it, it taught me as much about making film as anything else. Just the sort of two months that I sat in my office with my storyboards, thinking about shots and how one shot could cut with another shot and how that wouldn't work versus that would work and what that would give the story. I love that. But I also knew, just as I know when I'm acting, that you can prepare as much as you want and then you turn up and you get on set and nothing goes how you imagined it in your head. And if you're not prepared to shift with that, you're dead in the water. Like there's no hope. Um, you've got to be flexible and you've got to be open for accident and, and all of those, those things. So, you know, I think, I think, yes, I was very prepared. And yes, there was a, a choreographed sort of formality to the film that needed to be there, which sometimes meant that it was pretty precisely blocked and rehearsed. But within those kind of bounds and those limitations, and God knows we all need some limitations sometimes to like be the most creative that we can be. Absolutely. You know, there was freedom and there was room for accident and the kind of miracles that happen that you don't see coming, but you have to be open to spotting them. Um, and I'm very grateful that I sort of understood that going in because I definitely could have fallen into the trap which I think a lot of first-time directors fall into, of being so prepared that you cannot let the thing actually live independently of you. Yeah. No, I think it's actually, I think we're at an interesting moment because I think the streamers um, have created this phenomenon where there's actually too much room for directors uh, and they're making things that are either too long, they're not cutting, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not killing their darlings to make the best movie. And it's not because they're not brilliant and interesting and whatever, but the movie is served by a little bit of somebody with their hands around the throat <laughs> at some point. And it's, it, it seems to be out of, out, of, out of habit at the moment. And uh, it's interesting to watch really fine directors with a lot of experience kind of fall into this hole of making three and a half hour movies that should be two and a half hours. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm quite against making super long movies, I have to say. I'm like a, like a 
a nice searing drama that comes in at 98 minutes. <laughs> so when you got to post, was there a lot to decide on in post or were you so prepared that you kind of knew what the plot was? Uh, no, there was a lot to decide on in post. Post was a really fascinating time for me and I loved it because obviously, you know, editing, it's like writing again and you sort of, things were different, but had the same feel, but just sort of had to be fit in a different way in order to get that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved that. I loved it. Uh, it was incredibly difficult though, because all of our post was in, was during COVID and we didn't have a, a huge amount of money because we had not sold to, you know, a distributor or anything like that. So mm-hmm. we were up against it and the kind of the sort of extended period that COVID created was not necessarily financially supported. So it was very nail biting at times. And, you know, one of the things that was so important to me was the, the sound mix and the sort of creation of the, the, the oral auditory landscape, because for me, it always felt the way to shift between perspectives, like sort of find yourself right inside Irene's experience mm-hmm. and the things that are feel immediate to her, even if they could be too far away to actually hear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like an example is, you know, she sees Claire for the first time and even before she sees her, she hears her. And that's sort of taken through to the moment where she crosses her legs and you kind of, she hears her stockings rubbing together mm-hmm. pretty loudly, even though she's sat very far away. The sort of idea is that this is like this injection of sensuality into her core. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these very delicate sound mix things that were very difficult to achieve, actually. It's, it's incredibly difficult to mix a very quiet movie. Um, because there's, you know, people do a pass and just stick a bunch of Blue Jays and, and traffic right. on it. And... There's no hiding. No, and I'm like, that's actually another point. I mean, when people are not speaking and there's silence, it has to be quiet. Yeah. And, or the, the noise has to have a sort of oppressive quality, like the kids above or whatever. So, you know, I ended up needing and wanting three separate sound mixes, which because none of it, I didn't have experience of that. And it wasn't getting to the thing that I needed it to be um and I was very grateful that we won a grant from Dolby at Sundance actually to get the last one in but um mm. but yeah post was post was challenging it was challenging not being in a room with my editor for a lot of it I would think because we ended up but I uh, I don't have anything to compare it to and right. <laughs> I really hope that this isn't how I always want to work but I loved the time like I loved the space mm. of you know, my editor and I got, we tried doing Zoom or whatever, and it was sort of frustrating. And so we ended up doing, we ended up getting into this system because we'd already made a rough cut by the time we went into lockdown. So we'd had mm-hmm. some time in a room together, but we ended up doing this thing of, you know, we'd work on like a three minute section and I would write her a long email being like, Can you, let's try shaving off 0.6 frame you know whatever it was and then cutting to this and then take off two frames of that and then see what happens and she would want to upload a decent quality file of this three minutes that we'd Mm. been working on and it would take two hours for it to upload so I'd give her the notes and then I'd go and I'd have nothing to do for two hours Mm. And I'd go and I'd walk around my garden. And by the time it actually came in, I feel I was in a very different place to receive it than were I to have received it immediately sat next to her. So yeah. that I'm kind of grateful for, although it can't be recreated. I do understand. <laughs> well, you know, Trent Reznor and Atticus Finch scored three or four movies in rooms next to each other, having not seeing each other for two years. <laughs> but they were in the rooms next door to each other because that's where they had to work. But they, yeah. They talked by phone or whatever, or Zoom, but they were literally yeah. not seeing each other. Yeah. For safety's sake. So. Of course. A whole new set of rules, a whole, a whole new whole set of ideas of how to do things. Yeah, it's a, it, I, and it definitely, you know, all these, all these sort of odd circumstances do, do, do birth something new, like they have to. And sometimes that's quite interesting. So after all that time and all that passion and all that, unsure and all that sure you finally show the movie to people (laughs) in a public space (laughs) who aren't just your friends what was that like was it scary for you were you confident were you 
comfortable? No, I was, I was, I was terrified to the point of thinking that I needed to take a paper bag into the Alice Tully Hall or sit near an exit in case I was going to run outside and throw up. I, you know, the movie existed in my head forever. Then it existed in the bubble of the people who made it forever. It even premiered in a bubble. And I was still in my home in my pajamas. Uh, it sold to Netflix. I was still at home in my pajamas. And then suddenly it was premiering at the New York Film Festival in the Alice Tully Hall with a lot of people. And I'd not had, I'd not had a test screening. I'd never seen it with it. You know, if you're doing theater and you're doing previews, you know, my, my father, he was a theater director and he would spend all of the, you know, the preview section would be the hellscape of his professional life because it would be the week where he got the most work done, but was also the most terrifying because he'd actually be like, all the choices I've made are completely wrong and I've got to change everything. So I hadn't had any of that <laughs> and it was too late to change anything. So I was terrified. I was terrified. I was like, what if it's all completely wrong? What if this is all working in my head, but is not going to land with anyone and no one's going to get it. And and there were plenty of people who, you know, while it was getting made, were a little bit like, it's a kind of, you know, there's no resolution and you never tell anyone what to think. And, you know, I remember getting a note from someone being like, what are you actually saying about race in America at large? And I was like, <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> so that I was aware that it was subtle and it's not particularly fashionable, <laughs> you know. It's people not like a punchline. Yeah, people like to be told what to think a little bit. Yeah. And I I knew that I was being willfully contrary, not delivering that in any way. And it felt actually my duty to the book, to Nella Larson's spirit, to not deliver that in any way, but to keep this ambivalence and this ambiguity and this enigmatic quality to it. And But did I think it was going to work? I had no idea. I had no idea. So when it actually, when actually people did see it and got it, I actually found it pretty surprising. And how did you know they got it? Because I have done a gajillion Q and A's and people, so you, I, mean, didn't I don't really read reviews or anything, but I've been told right. about some of them. So, you know, I try and stay away from that, but I know that I've looked, I've, the couple I've seen that, that have written about it so eloquently, it kind of knocks my socks off a bit. Cause I'm, you know, it's so, the, the very subtle things that I, sort of thought maybe would just people would miss are being seen and mm. people come up to me after screenings and comment on the most intricate details and the mo and people want to see it again people I've many people have spoken to me who have seen it two or three times and uh, you know like reading all these meanings into it and finding different ways to interpret it and it's very moving to see so that. you were in Alice Tully Hall when it premiered yeah could you feel it? I mean, you said the Q&A, but could you feel the room? Yes, no, there? I could. I could feel the room because I found that screening personally excruciating. Like, you know, Oren Moverman, who's been a big champion of mine and one of the executive producers on it, said to me at some point when I was complaining about not having any screenings or any experience with an audience, he was like, you know what, there's going to be, you're going to see the movie so many times and you're going to have good screenings and bad screenings. There are gonna be screenings where the movie seems fantastic and then they're gonna see exactly the same movie and it's gonna seem like a hellscape. Um, I was having one of the hellscape experiences where I spent, I spent the whole time being like, oh God, it's so slow. No one's, no one's getting this, what is happening? But then, you know, my husband sort of poked me at some point because I was shifting so much and he was just like, just listen. And so I just took a moment to actually sort of tune in with the audience. And you could, it was pin drop silence in that huge room. And that was the moment where I started to be a bit like, well, maybe we've got them. Maybe they're, maybe they're actually paying attention, which was sort of always the goal to make people pay attention because you have to with this film. It gives you more, it gives you more the more you engage with it. Thoughtfully. It was the silence you designed. Yeah. <laughs> that you work so hard with your sound guys, your multiple sound guys, yeah. <laughs> to try to achieve. Yeah, yeah. And when there is so much acceptance, and when you do get 
the few reviews that are really insightful and really, you know, digging into the emotionality of it. And, and you see the impact it has culturally, uh, particularly in the moments of, of racial strife in our country and, and I'm sure in the UK as well. How does that feel at this point? Does this feel like, is there a satisfaction? Is it a sense that you've done your job? Are you at peace with what you've done? because of that or are you piece of what, with what you've done because you just are I don't know that I'll ever be at peace with anything <laughs> I've ever done I don't think that's really possible for an artist really I mean you can you can have different levels of acceptance but there's always a certain amount of I I do think that it's taken me slightly by surprise you know you get on the train so hard to get the train out of the station and then it starts moving and you're just you're just like doing your thing it's like this is how it has to be this is how it has to be this is how it has to be and then at a certain point it sells and then you're promoting it it's like this is <laughs> still on the you're still, and then at a certain point it's done and this is a new experience for me that piece and I do find myself taking stock of it all and realizing that it's somehow, somewhere on the journey, it got a lot bigger than me. Mm. And that is quite satisfying to see that it has a force that of course I wanted, but it's somehow it's taken on its own. It's its own thing now beyond me. Mm. And that's moving of course like you know it's the I made the film for my mother and the biggest thing about it has been that she got to see it mm. and what did she say when she saw it <sighs> probably too difficult to talk about I just lost her a couple Sorry. weeks ago yes my condolences but she she said that she was I think she found enormous peace with it, mm. um, which I didn't even think was possible. Did she know that you understood her? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. Big one for any kid. Yeah. <sighs> well, now we're both going to cry. It's going to be great. <laughs> as long as you're with me then it's you know hey less something well i i, I, I you i identify with your story in many odd ways it's in your life story so you know I had an older father i had uh and i you know ironically i'm browner than you and i i there were times when people thought i was black including yafet koto who insisted that i was trying to pass really? um, <laughs> yes he did he was like brother why are you trying to pass What's going on with that? He had those giant hands. He had these huge, like, mitt hands. And he was, like, holding me. And was, I was so honored, really, in a way. But, um, yeah, everybody's always thought I was so, any ethnicity other than the one I am. <laughs> and I'm adopted on top of it. Yeah. So it's like... No, it's the same with my husband. He always he always gets, like, are you? Are you? What, what are you? And it's, like, just, like, just Jewish, straight up Ashkenazi. <laughs> yeah. Well, I finally found out by 23 and me that I actually was almost completely Ashkenazi, but it was like, you know, for I've, every cab driver, every guy, every clerk, every person of any color from any country with beige, I yeah. got, you know, like, am I one of you kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I always yeah. could keep my mouth shut and pretend because <laughs> they liked me better when I was quiet, not Ashkenazi or whatever, American even. Um, yeah. So it's complicated. And it, it's it's okay. fascinating, and I and I think your movie um, really, it's interesting. There's a movie that was at Sundance this year um, uh, by L W Kamal Bell, which is coming out on Showtime, called "We Need to Talk About Cosby," and it's a lot of it is about how the black community felt about the situation, for better and for worse, and how much they loved him and the ways they loved him and mm -hmm. how how yeah. hard that transition was to thinking of him in a different way when he was so important to them for so long. 
Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a conversation. Like your movie is a conversation. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Because that doesn't happen enough in the movies anymore. Now it's you know, even no. besides the CG of it all, even in the in the art films, even in the qual, you know, yeah. even in the dramas, it's tell me what to think, tell me what to think. Yeah. And like Oren, you do well, not. Well, maybe feel. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. instead of just asking the question and letting people figure it out, because that's really the best art, I think. Yeah. I mean, I agree might not be the most fashionable but i agree i think it's the lingering stuff it's the stuff that lingers because if you've got a if you've got to do work to get somewhere to get something out of it then you're 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 in it you're a part of the fabric of the movie it's like you know i don't know that it the movie doesn't really exist without that piece because everyone will see something different in it well i think that's part of the conversation about cinemas versus television you know there's nothing wrong with television everybody people watch a lot of it and have for many many years but the experience of going to the theater and putting yourself in that room absolutely and yeah. focusing yeah. is you know i've been wanting desperately and i actually they're going to put an imax but the uh, eight hour beatles thing that peter jackson did oh yeah yeah just the idea of being alone with that for eight hours in a, in a theater wow yeah so compelling to me I don't yeah. think they're actually going to ever get the eight hours into a theater, but they're doing an IMAX for like two. Oh, hours. it would be so great. But my, just, my, yeah. my dad did a piece of theater actually once that was 12 hours long. It was a Greek, a Greek thing. Um, and I, I have to say it was, so, it was a really, it was a fascinating feeling like going in with the same audience and then going out every hour for, you know, toilet breaks and snacks then having lunch, then going back in again. It felt like time took on this completely different feeling. It was a really sort of unusual kind of communal experience. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll make a 12 hour film. That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm if, sure if, someone if will give me the money for that. <laughs> I sat through Showa in a theater twice. <laughs> I mean, I, and you know, but even like Norman Conquest, it's not. Yeah, right. Whatever, it, it, the whole experience of going back twice is, significant right. significant exactly it's something different it changes your 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 brain chemistry yes yes yeah. yeah it asks more of you than sitting in your living room and going oh yeah okay <laughs> it can be perfectly enjoyable being completely mesmerized by a screen but there's something about doing a little work that really makes it uh, worth it well thank you for your work thank you for the seven hour seven years plus of getting there, I, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the next one in two years, <laughs> maybe a year and a half. Who knows? <laughs> no it could be super no quick. Two years seems fine. <laughs> Don't want to rush you. <laughs> okay, I'll try. I, I'll try. I'll try to be patient then. <laughs> there are some filmmakers where it's like they're like five year cycles, and I'm like, you're ever going to make a? And they, I'm trying for two. I'm trying for two, <laughs> desperately. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's amazing the people who put out one a year, you know, Woody Allen for oh, I, hours, yeah, I would putting think. out one a year is like, oh my God. But yeah, something to be said for that kind of timetable. You know, yeah. this is the month in which I write, this is the month in which I shoot, this is the month in which I edit. It's like you, yeah. you're you're having to do it. Habit's an interesting thing. Yeah. Anyway, thanks again so much and condolences again on your mother and it's always hard and um, I look forward to more. Thank you so much. Thank you, take care. Take care you, thank Bye. you David, bye-bye.